Welcome back to the Everyday Endurance Podcast, a podcast for everyday people who want to do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Simon Perrodin, and as usual, I'm joined by my brother, Luke Perrodin. Hello, everyone. I am his actual brother, not just his bra or bro. And on this show, we talk about training for and competing in endurance events and how to balance endurance training with work and family life. And I'm really looking forward to this discussion. We've got a guest on, Simon. It's going to be really good. Tell us all about it, and then we'll introduce our guest. I too am really excited from the the bit of research I've had time in our busy running endurance work life um, land that we're all in that we talk about on this podcast. So I guess today is Timmy Bristow and Timmy is to call him an ultra runner is probably a, it's a bit too simple. He's a multifaceted, very talented man. Um, Some of his achievements recently, and I'm sure I won't get all of them. He's done approximately 250 kilometer run from the north of Tasmania to its capital city right down in the south for charity. I'll leave the details of that one till we get into it because that's uh, a very interesting one. He's also done what the race itself is called the Point to Pinnacle. It describes itself as the world's toughest half marathon because it pretty much goes straight up a very big mountain. So fair claim to fame, but it does look, it is pretty tough. That's just, we'll also get in a little bit of details from that because there's a bit of a twist that Timmy had to make it just that little bit harder. He is a teacher. He is a children's book author and he also does mentoring for athletes and others and probably much more, which we might get into now. So without further from me, welcome to the show, Timmy. Thanks so much for having me. Real privilege to come on with you experts. Looking forward to uh, chewing the fat and talking all things enduro and, and life in general. Thanks for having me. I actually added the line, Timmy, to the, the show notes last time to say um, something like where um, nothing in this show would constitute expert advice, get yourself a coach. But, but sure, we're <laughs> yeah, the experts. Yeah, well, Good. let's just pretend uh, your background in itself, those people listening probably can't, but that's expert in my mind, anything that um, can be done techno. Um, you're doing a great job at showcasing your expertise anyway. Sure. Thank you, <laughs> Thank Timmy. You. Well, let's get into it. Let's um, start off talk about um, um, Just Like Jack. Do you, are you able to give a bit of a background on Just Like Jack? Yeah, just- of course. Yep, just Like Jack is a foundation that was um, pretty much organised purely as a family awareness program by a guy called Chris Duffy. Now, Chris Duffy and his beautiful wife, Erin, um, they moved down to Tasmania from a little place in New South Wales called Finlay. Um, and I don't, if anyone in the listening world here knows football in the AFL realm, um, Shane Crawford is probably the most famous person out of Finlay and he grew up with Chris. Um, so Chris and Aaron had a huge background in Army Reserve and um, I think Chris even flew Black Hawk helicopters. So he's someone that might be worthwhile getting on the podcast. He's got an incredible story. But part of their journey was uh, they moved down to a little country town called Branksholm in the northeast of Tasmania and bought the pub. Everything was going really swell. They had a couple of um, really lovely kids at the time. It was really young in their life. And, and then along came number three. And Jack, number three, is a really special human being. He was born and something wasn't quite right. Um, so after a few weeks, they had some tests and things done. And it turns out, unfortunately, that um, there were some things happening in the background there that they couldn't actually alleviate the strain from and um, reverse any effects. And now Jack, as a 16-year-old, um, is living life to the full through the eyes of others because he is a quadriplegic um, and has spastic quadriplegia, which is a really tough 
thing to deal with as, as a human being in itself. But the work that the family does is quite incredible to show off to the world around them that even though Jack can't, people can. And uh, I'm really lucky to be part of the journey to ensure that we're pre- preaching that message that I can and I will because Jack can't. And um, the foundation is based around raising awareness and funds for people who cannot in life. And uh, it really brings a community together based purely on the image and vision of a, an amazing family. And uh, I'm really glad, as I said, to be part of their journey in some form. Yeah, fantastic. If you're lucky enough to, if you're lucky enough to visit Tasmania, you might see at some of the playgrounds, some of their um, handiwork of that charity. You see there's um, accessible bits of play equipment. I've noticed some of them. I've seen one at least in, in Launceston here. So fantastic stuff. And so you um, have done a few events with them, Timmy. Point to Pinnacle, the most recent. And why don't we start with the long one? That was a, yeah. a little while ago now, but it's I've, we've seen that there's a video online of it on your website, which we can link to. Yeah, but, of course. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so the way it came about, it was quite coincidental, I suppose. I started my um, journey as a Scotch Open teacher at a school in, in, in Launceston here. And within the first week and a half, we had a leadership day for year five. And the guest speaker was actually Chris Duffy. At that point in time, we were just in the makings of creating our third title, um, a children's book, Nowhere Else, which is based all about Tasmania and the crazy and kooky places within our amazing state here in Tassie. Now, uh, we wanted to jump on board. We're, my wife and I really love the idea of charity and service to the community. And it was such great timing that I actually went up to Chris afterwards and talked about how inspiring his story was and I wanted to get involved. Um, and I just said, we're actually publishing a book later in the year. Would you mind if we put your charity as our charity of choice to raise money and funds for? As it turned out, he came along and spoke at our launch, which was an amazing night, to thank us for raising all the money that we did for different auction items and whatnot. He got us out to his place for a barbecue. And I asked him at that point, what were some of the events that he was putting in the pipeworks? And he said, oh, we're actually stupid enough to do this event. We're thinking of pushing Jack and his wheelchair in his wheelchair from Georgetown, which is at the north end of the river at the top of the state, um, all the way down to Mount Wellington, the peak of Mount Wellington, which is just out of Hobart, as you alluded to earlier, Simon. Um, I just said straight away, I'm in. I'm in. Um, at the time, I feel like I just retired from football, and football has been a huge part of my life. Um, Dad was an AFL footballer, an Australian rules footballer for Footscray back in the day. So footy was everything. So to lose that, I, I kind of had a fear of getting a dad bod in a way. But also I had that drive and the passion that sometimes, you know, sporting clubs and, and sporting elite professionals um, sometimes go through. They lose their sport and they lose their identity. So I wanted to keep running and, and staying fit and um, I just jumped at the opportunity and, and got a program and a running coach and um, away I went. I wasn't quite prepared for the idea of running for six days straight doing, you know, 45 k's a day. And it uh, certainly wasn't made any easy by pushing Jack um, and his wheelchair, which was, you know, the, my body weight. So I was pushing my body weight. Um, but again, amazing experience and culminated, as you said before, with the Point of Pinnacle, the hardest half marathon in the in the world, as they say, and uh, 20, 21 and a bit Ks up a mountain pushing an 80 kilos um, wheelchair and a young inspirational human being was uh, bringing plenty of smiles. But by that stage of the week, I was, I was, I was didn't know if I could gather myself to bring a smile to my face, but um, yeah, about three hundred k's it was over the week. Wow! Let me get this straight: you went into that as a new runner, a new ultra marathon runner. That was something that you've obviously really fit from football, a football career. But 
Yeah, yeah. It was an wow. interesting story. Growing up, I always wanted to run marathons because when my father had retired from his football days, he ran seven or eight marathons. Um, and I remember riding my bike when he was in training. He'd go out and we'd ride along there. My brother and I run alongside him and um, he'd outrun us. We were only eight or ten at the time. I remember when he was running and he'd outrun us and end up running backwards to tell us to hurry on. And I just thought, I'm going to do that. I want to outrun dad when I'm older. Um, I was a very good running footballer. I had the physique of a runner even as a footballer. I was very skinny, a, a wingman or an inside mid that ran lots. Um, and interestingly enough, even as a child uh, and a teenager, I, I used to just love running. I love the runners high from a young age. I'd, I even go to parties as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, have about 10 beers, and then I'd just run home at about 2 in the morning in the middle of the road trying to use the, uh, the white lines as a, as a guide. I think we um, might be related. Yeah, yeah. Better check on genealogy.com or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure this podcast is full of listeners that do stupid things, but that was how I got into doing stupid things to my body. And I think in some weird way it's inadvertently created this pain threshold that my body could handle tough conditions. Drinking under the influence, uh, running under the influence of alcohol is probably not wise, but um, it certainly was a, a first step in my um, in my progression as a dumb person who wants to run lots. And, um, yeah, that, that was where we brought it to. And um, going through each day of that journey, 16 months ago running, 52K is the first day and eventuated to be 42 on the last. And as we said, the up the mountain, the half marathon on the day after that was um, something that my pain threshold probably allowed. But more importantly, the mental side of it was where we probably got most from it. How was day two? So 52Ks and then, then you start day two. Yeah. Um, so 52Ks. Then the mental K's side, that, Simon's going to want to ask you about the mental side of, of oh, that. Yeah. But how, how was your body on that? Um, we were really lucky. We had a massage therapist and a physio that was helping out along the way. They obviously weren't with us on the run, but at the end of each day, I'd check in with both of those people. And um, I remember just getting out of the ute after the second day. My tibial band was just absolutely caning it was an epic pain that i would never felt before after the first day for those people that don't know tasmania it's incredibly hilly and to think pushing uphill was difficult um, i didn't quite prepare for, for holding jack's weight down the steep hills from georgetown to Lonnie. and there's 19 of them if you're ever out wanting to count i counted them on the way there in the morning there was 19 steep hills that i had to get up um, but it was actually the downhill jarring on the knees and the tibial band waking up from a 52 kilometer um, run after, um, as I said, never run long distance, maybe 18 or 20 Ks was the most I'd done before training for this event. Um, obviously, I was training 30, 35 Ks a few times during the training, but um, to do 52 Ks, and we did it really quickly, um, maybe I think it was five minutes and nine seconds per K that first day. So we probably went out too hard. Um, I woke up really sore. Um, I just remember getting out of the Ute after the 42 kilometer second, sorry, 48 kilometers. So we did 100 Ks in the first two days. Um, and I just went to the physio and he said the next day after that, when I went home after day two, mate, I said to my wife, you're going to have to pray for Timmy. I don't think he's going to make it. I was in the most pain I've ever been in um, on day two and there was another five days to go. But um, for some reason, day three, it was like we started fresh again and, and I didn't have the pain again, which is incredible in itself. Isn't that amazing how you get that second wind on multi-day things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I uh, lost a couple of toenails day three as well, um, which was handy. I think it took the pain away from tibial band and knee area. So, um, And then we're back to square one with the pain threshold, I guess. So, yeah, it's a great story. So what are the – it is a great story and um, your um, – 
your football career was a, a bit of a, a massive omission from my little bio that I collected. So sorry about that. But um, no, that's okay. I was wondering what were the the logistics like? Like, where did you sleep? You said when you got up for the next day, and how did you eat? Did you have you know a big hamper of food, or how um, did that all it's work? A really great question. And I think my running coach, he's also he's a scientist in in, in the university world as well. Um, he talked a lot about eating, and interestingly enough, I just and really inexperienced, my naivety probably helped. Eating in the planning for um, the race was something that I'd never really thought about. So while I was training, I'd go out and do maybe um, being a football coach as well. We would travel over to Sydney or um, Melbourne. So I'd, I'd get up at 4 o'clock because the plane to go out to Melbourne or Sydney was at 6.37 and I'd run two and a half hours, forget to eat because you just wake up in the dark. I'd go and run 25Ks, get on a plane and then realise that before long it was lunchtime and we had a football match to prepare for with the, uh, the boys. Um, I was in Melbourne, didn't have any shops or anything nearby. So I'd sometimes go eight hours after a run without eating and um, that probably wasn't a great thing but what it did do is again just bring that threshold into the fore and um, help me understand that mental gains by doing that was actually supporting me along the run. Um, I wasn't that stupid on the run. We had lots of the gels and the goos but also um, such a huge community out in Tassie. We had people just throwing over um, money out of windows and um, you know, just stopping by, dropping food off and whatnot as we went. So I think sushi and rice were my staple, um, really light, um, but obviously gave us a, a fair bit of nutrients. We was able to hold for a little bit longer than just your average, you know, sugar goos or gels. Um, I'm not a great eater of gluten stuff anyway. Um, so having bread rolls and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and things that a lot of blogs and things I read did advise to have, it didn't really work out for me. Um, so more or less, I was just taking in whatever I could. And I think more importantly was the fluids that I was losing um, was where I got the most gains during the run. Um, so I can't really give advice if anyone's looking for advice on what not to do when you're preparing for a seven-day, 300-kilometer run. Um, maybe listen in. But if you're trying to work out how you get yourself to an endurance level where you need some food to uh, to keep your substance up, um, yeah, probably don't listen to what I'm saying around that space, yeah. But having said that, you built up a team of – people to advise you on those things. You had a physio, you had a coach. Uh, mm-hmm. Who else did you have on this big team of people? It's not just you doing it. Uh, yeah, um, I did have, who was really lucky, my wife's obviously my rock in life. We do life together. Um, she was amazing in allowing me the balance um, to do this. Um, sometimes I'd be up at four, as I said, and then um, beyond that, she was my support when I was feeling a bit flat or heavy in the legs and I'd come home and weren't sure I was going to be able to do it when we're counting down the weeks and the months before the race, um, the event. But, yeah, I had the Duffy family and their board because it's a foundation. There was lots of people that were willing to donate their time and resources in that space, whether it was through media um, promotion or um, IT specialist work. Also, we had people in the background organising our food and um, accommodation as we went along. We drove back each day um, to Launceston until we got past about 100 kilometres past Monceston. We then um, were lucky enough to get a, a place called The Mansion in Hobart um, and we travelled down to that place. So things like that was really great because we could then concentrate on getting the job done. We were um, incredibly grateful for the support we got from the police force in Tasmania. They were out and about a few times just checking in on us and they also were really great for Erin and Chris in the logistics side of it because, as you know, running on the highway, and with the inclement weather that we did come across, we had snow, hail and rain quite often um, across the week um, that 
people were using their road safety um, acumen, I guess, to support the, the, the foundation in their endeavours. Sometimes we'd have three or four people running. Um, and as people know, highways can often get quite thin, especially across bridges. So those types of things are really great to have. Um, from a physical space, as I said before, a massage therapist followed us around. Um, so that was fantastic. And the physio at the end of the first three or four days that I have in um, Zach Young's his name, if you want to look him up, he's the best in Tasmania by far. Um, incredible person. He helped us out and, and donated all his time um, as well for free, which is amazing. Um, yeah, and beyond that, I think just having that the, the coach and the mentor there in Casey Mainsbridge, who works out uh, at that time, he was out at Utah, Simon, but he now works up in the university in um, in New South Wales. So those experts were sort of pushing me along in the right directions because I was obviously uh, a bit sporadic with my idea of what it took and uh, how I was going to get through. So Zach, Luke, Zach and Casey sound like could be um, interesting candidates for your other podcast, which is the Physio Foundations podcast. Another Look that plug. one up. If, Thank if, you. If you're a sports scientist or physiotherapist and interested in that sort of thing, Luke but has another really podcast. It's actually really good to hear. Yeah, exactly. It's really good to hear your perspective because I talk to other professionals as I'm a physiotherapist. I talk to other physios and physio students on my other podcast. It's interesting to, to get your perspective on what you needed during an event like that and mm -hmm. what makes a good um, massage therapist or physio, but we digress. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah, story. Um, Zach, mm. Zach was incredible in that space. He has the knowledge, but I also think he has a way to bring out your resilience. He has a way to bring out that innate um, insight that sometimes we don't feel we have within ourselves. And I think the best way to describe Zach, he'd bring the idea that you can do it and you will do it. So I kept saying it, I can and I will, I can and I will. And I think that came from Zach's, you know, inspiration and the way that he pushed my body in, in the preparation to it and, um, and kept telling me about that, that you can do this and you will do it. It's going to be tough. It's going to be bloody hard at different times, but you, your body will get through. It's okay. And that's how I sort of got through mentally was saying that to myself that I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for Jack and, um, and his family, but I'm also understanding that I can do it and I will do it. And it sort of spurred me on. And Zach's um, expertise in that field that you talked about, Luke, was incredible um, in supporting my idea that I could get to it. Yeah, great. One, one thing that's, um, especially in the southern states where we are, but, you know, for, for all people in ultra, one thing is that you have to um, face uh, to train for an event like that is probably training in the dark. Do you like, how do you go with training in the dark? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's a really tricky one because as we're aware, when it's dark, it's obviously not as warm. In Tassie, it's next level. So getting up and, and um, doing things in the space of time before school, before, um, you know, kids drop off, before you get to work, before you have any real food in your body, um, it was really tricky to start with. Luckily, as we said already, the experts around me supported that. But um, getting up at 4.30 in the morning probably wasn't hugely new or novel to me. So that was probably lucky to get that routine. Um, I'm not sure if you guys feel the same or some of your listeners will be agreeing with this, that you get the work done early. And I think that sets your um, day up really well by feeling fresh. You can get the walk in so your body can loosen off later in the day. And um, I also feel that when your body is in that space, you, your, your brain sort of follows suit. So when you wake up, the, you, you warm your body up, then your brain actually freshens up as well. Um, getting up in the dark was hard, but I think in the middle of winter when I was doing big Ks um, in minus two and sort of kicking the frost off the roads or whatever, it was really tricky. 
um, at times. And again, that just reiterated the importance of having mental toughness to get through a race by if you can train in minus two degrees running out the back of uh, St. Leonard's or White Hills or something like that, um, doing big runs, you can get through anything. Yeah, It's also pretty yeah. exciting though is it, as well, isn't it, when you're, when you're getting up early, you're doing something and We've, one of the yeah, things yeah, of this yeah. podcast we, that we want to carry through is the the mental side of things, and how we can use exercise and endurance sport in particular as a as a way of give, grounding us through our lives. And that's going to be something that we carry through on many episodes. There, there aren't many people who are going to come on here and talk about just the physical aspects of what went on. It's it's changing your mind and you're developing yourself personally mm. as you train for these events. It's really yeah, interesting yeah. listening to you talk about it. I think that with the mental side of things, it's something that we probably need to reflect on and grow within ourselves each day. Often we don't spend enough time finding our inner leader or, you know, people talk about the fluffy stuff like finding the best version of yourself. There's a lot of theory behind it and the research does suggest that the clearer you are on what you want in life and um, you're aligning values to what you want with your direction, the better you are at actually going out and doing something about it and putting action plans in place. Um, so you're right, the mental side of things I think sometimes gets left behind because people have the idea that I can get my body ready for it. But until you put yourself in a position where you need to grow in resilience, um, you don't really have the opportunities to learn how to not have everything go perfectly. Right. Um, and yeah. often that fear factor of oh, what's going to happen if people watch me or do things or that judgment that comes upon yourself when I fail, it sort of keeps you in this level of or space of resentment around your own progress. Um, so the mental toughness stuff just comes literally from putting yourself out there and having a go at different things. And it's something we really need to promote in young children. As we know, the, the world's changing and it's an ever-changing place and sometimes technology grows before our human brain. So the more often we put ourselves in positions to grow physically and mentally, um, the better we are as people in the long run as well. So, Oh, that's yeah. so good. So something I, th- I think about that a bit too, the world that we're currently raising children in. I mean, it didn't exist in, in this way, a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with as precious as parents, et cetera, just they literally hadn't even been thought up with yet when, when I was a kid. Um, yep. And so, and, and that's quite interesting environment to try and balance things in. Yeah, um, so I, I want to take you there, Simon, and actually put yourself in a position of someone like Chris and Aaron Duffy. So we bring up kids in a world where we just want the best for our children um, and then we have a third child and this child is going to grow up in the world not having the experiences that our children get to run and play on a swing, to get to um, go for a jog, to get to t- join team sports, to grow up and go to university, to grow up and have a job and have a family of their own. It's a really crazy space to put yourself into mentally. Um, and again, without mental toughness, we, we're not going to get through life. So it's a crazy world we live in. Um, and sometimes we are very insular in the way that we think, what about me? What about me? So I think too, doing things that put ourselves in a space that show our kids that not everything goes well, not everything's perfect. Although we want our worlds to be perfect, our kids need to see things where they aren't perfect. And modeling that's really important, um, in, in that space too. Like you were saying, Simon, the, the world, uh, is an ever changing place. Um, and, and children don't know that we don't know either. And it's okay. Um, because there are people out there that will never get the opportunity to say, I don't know, or I can't do something, or I can do something, or I want to go change the world. So we're going to do that for them. And modelling um, those behaviours is the most important thing, yeah. So it's a responsibility that that we we should take on as people who can do things and put things out there and um, and and can 
raise money for charity and do things like that. Yeah, that's that's great. So when you when you came from footy and went into this new journey that you're on, if I can call it that, um, it's all a journey anyway, isn't it? So let's go with that. Um, you, in my, from my my take of it, would be that you designed it. You saw a need for something, and you said, "Right, I've got a need for something." Some crazy circumstances came in with the you know you you managed to find that, but you were out looking for that that next drive, that passion, that thing. Sometimes we get people though um, who I talk to when I talk about running, and they say, "Oh, you, you're out running," and look, look, I'm not as fit as you, Timmy, and, and Luke, you have your ultra achievements, but, you know, compared to the average person do quite a bit and they say, oh, you're out running, out running, but they don't just, ha- they don't always seem to have that motivation, that drive to go, well, it's on me. If I decide to go and I want to do that, then, you know, I take the steps. So do you have any advice for people when they're there where they don't, they don't, they want to have that vision and they're not but they they're finding it hard at that stage to switch on and go well what is my purpose where am i mm. where am i heading with stuff yeah. yeah it's a really good question because uh there are probably a lot of people out there that just get stagnated in life um and we all go through it we all definitely go through it sometimes we look at people with rose-colored glasses if only i was like them why why do they get it so good or um why do we have opportunity they have opportunities that i don't but it really just starts from within. Um, and I think probably for me, my, my journey is an interesting one and we won't go too much into the details, but I, I grew up um, in a really lovely family in a, in a really great country town. Um, but when I was in year six, I had some really traumatic things happen to me. And I think there was two ways in life I could have gone. And I, my teenage years on, ensued in a way that probably wasn't representable to the rest of the community. I was pretty rebellious and I took, um, I took things into my own hands that, Probably now I look back and regret that I had. A, if I had spoken up at the time, there would have been opportunities for me to grow and become somebody different. But I'm also too now reflective and understand I'm thankful for the opportunities because it now lets me be compassionate because people who suffer can actually sit in the suffering with other people. Um, and as a source of inspiration, I feel like the first place you need to start is within yourself. Um, often we look at people with, as I said, rose-coloured glasses, what if I was like that or how do they become like that? I just need my lucky break. But we do make our own luck in life and, and looking from within, um, we do find an inner leader. And sometimes we need a little push, whether that's research or reading books. Um, some people go and get mentors or coaches um, and that can just sometimes align us with what we want to be and who we actually are. And, and, and then we start to think about living a values-driven life. And if we can align ourselves to a values-driven life every day, then we're going to fill our cup. We're going to be able to see fulfilment. Um, and that comes in different forms. It doesn't mean you need to go out and run seven marathons in seven days or whatever um, to get fulfilment. It might be just by knowing that my value is compassion or I have a value that is respect or integrity. And if I can live that every day, then I'm going to fill my cup. Um, so we're talking and we're probably list, having our listeners out there going, yeah, but I'm an ultra marathon runner. I want to be like this. Um, but I think it still starts regardless of your, your, your upbringing what happens in life, your experiences, it starts from within and aligning to your values. And if you can live that every day, then I think that's an inspiration to not only the people around you, but yourself. Um, and being a self-reflective person that I am, um, if I can, if I can do that and inspire others along the way and empower, whether it's young people or older people alike, um, to be a better person, 
um, then I'm doing a pretty good job, I reckon, and I, I can make myself proud and my family proud by doing so. Well, I'll second that you are. But anyway, the um, I um, it what you just said is is uh, really reminds me of something that my wife Melissa, who you know, has said to me many times, and she's been through some struggles with her health and other stuff over the last decade. Um, you know, culminating ending up in intensive care at one stage, and mm-hmm. she. Uh, you know, and the the normal work pressures and family pressures and things that we all deal with. And she's often come back to a point after a period of pain and, you know, struggling through something where she said um, everything, you know, it all happened for a reason, like it all got there. Not that she's believing that the, you know, not so much in the metaphorical, the universe has put this here to challenge me, although some people take it that way if, if they have a higher power, that sort of thing. But she sort of means when she gets, that's how she processes through, you know, the whys or how come that thing happened. She says, well, you know, if I hadn't done, if, if that happened out there with that work stress, I wouldn't have discovered it. I wouldn't have been really annoyed with that. I wouldn't have discovered this other opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that really I found helps her kind of go through those things and not get hung up and keep moving forward because she's quite a high performer, my wife, like in terms of career and things. So she's, you know, that that's how she reframes that stuff because we can also, with stuff that's happened in the past, get stuck on it. You know, people mm-hmm. get stuck, don't they, and then they, they can't progress forward. Um, like to talk about this, the, the mentoring, how are you going with that? That sounds fascinating. That's You've got a mentoring business. I was just looking at your – we'll put your website in the show notes um, yeah, yeah, for everyone yeah, to have sure. a look at and timothybristow.com. Um, and then so you've got some information about your mentoring business on there. Yeah, I had the same question. Yeah, for sure. I, I think um, what's really important at this time is to understand um, that people all need nurturance in some way. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky. Like later tonight I'm having a bit of a mentor meeting with a guy out of Ireland. He's a really um, cool figure. He's a great figure in the Gaelic football world. Um, so we're having a bit of a catch-up tonight, which is amazing. Um, obviously, the time difference there sort of throws a spanner in the works, but, yeah, we sort of work around it. So I can't wait to um, work in that space with Johnny. Um, but, yeah, I mean, everyone needs guidance and nurturance. No one knows how to do everything perfectly. And the way it sort of came about was purely just by the understanding that I was going to change the world one day as a kid. And, and um, I think I followed through that naturally I'm a leader. I love everything culture, I love everything leadership and I love everything structure. So whether it's business, sporting clubs, community, foundations and as you've heard already with the run that we did, I just love organising things and getting behind something with, you know, everything I've got. Um, My journey with football sort of took me into the coaching realm as I got older and that sort of IP around football was um, something that gave me opportunities and I was really lucky to work in both um, the State League Football Club um, Launceston in Tasmania and also the Tasmanian Devils and the NAB League, which is a national under-18s elite sports system. And, and from there, I, I started chatting with people on a different level and, and from that spawned um, some conversations with adults as well and, um, you know, finding inspiration in what they do every single day was something we had in common, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And um, that's really, yeah, sort of shelved my idea of people can't learn I think sometimes you get people that are in jobs that are really high up and you think, oh, where else can they go? Everyone should be on a journey where they're learning every single day and um, simple messaging around purpose and um, vision that we've already talked about, that's where you start. Um, What do you want in life and how do we put an action plan in place to allow you to achieve um, fulfilment every single day? Um, 
so yeah, I, I, I do lots of work with um, young sporting people, as you've mentioned earlier in the show. Um, I'm lucky enough to have worked with um, Super Netball girls from four different states, um, VFL, Samful players in South Australia and Victoria um, in football, and then even people in business, insurance in, in Tasmania. And um, I think there's a community network leader that I, I work with lots and um, they actually offer opportunity for youth, children in apprenticeships and stuff like that. So we all have the same goals in life and that's to make an impact on others. Um, and like I said earlier, starting with that leadership from within is really important. So just helping people clarify what they want and um, putting some action plans in place. I was really lucky that my job four years ago was actually full-time instructional coach. So I got to coach teachers on how to do their trade each day and um, watch people do some amazing things. And along the way, we, we make some really lovely relationships and that helps fill my cup as well. So it's a sort of a two-way thing. So I'd call it more of a hobby than a, a side business as much as it, it is a business um, proposition. Um, and from that, I get to do lots of workshops um, in mental health, culture, feedback, communication, um, as well as do some inspirational guest speaking roles. A couple of weeks ago, I did one for 250 Year 12 people hold the space. Um, when we do some emotional stuff, is quite is quite inspirational for me as well. Despite me being the one leading the session. That's amazing, Timmy. You've, so you've got coaching from football background, and then you're a school teacher, and mm-hmm. and then. That next question was about kids' books because you've got you're a published author of of kids' books, and that makes sense if you think about what you're talking about, the values that you you hold in your own life and your teaching background and everything. But can you tell us what led to that? That's pretty amazing. You're a published author of kids' books. Um, not everyone can yeah. say that. So tell us about that. I really love the story of how it came about. I think writing as a young kid was my exit. Um, from the world I, I loved going into the realm of imagination and um, being a footballer that grew up in a country Victorian ochre macho chest beating community being sensitive and showing your your emotions probably wasn't a thing that was seen as valuable nor was it seen as something that was accepted and as we yeah. know everything we do in life we're just trying to be accepted mm-hmm. um, and then to find belonging um, but what I really love about the idea of belonging now as an adult is that belonging shouldn't require you to change who you are Belonging actually requires you to be who you are. Um, so secretly as a kid, I was sort of writing heaps. I loved writing songs. I was a front man of a band that won like a battle of a band. Nice. Um, and we used to write songs. I loved that. Um, and that sort of, you know, brought about the cool side of writing. I think writing stories and that people would question my sexuality, I think, was the way that it was brought up on my 21st birthday because I loved writing poems and stuff. Um, yeah. And then as, a, as a, um, an adult, I really wanted to write a book. I love being around kids and um, finding values that aligned with kids were, was something I found come easy because I was around them every day. And um, kids are quite amazing people. They go, um, give you sort of a breath of fresh air in life, but they also give you inspiration for characters. Um, no kid is exactly the same as the next. Um, so I came up with this idea that I was going to create a character called Billy. So when I modelled writing in my early days as a teacher, I'd call the character Billy Bob Bristow. And uh, my first book was called Billy the Brilliant. Um, so I played on alliteration a little bit and that was about a child that was a magician. All he wanted to do was be a magician and change the world. No dissimilar to me, um, wanting to change the world. And one day he woke up and his pet rabbit, his famous assistant, had passed away. Um, and it talks about resilience and family and having support networks. So naturally, people talk about leadership and resilience in the same sentence in schools. Um, so that really opened up some doors as to having author visits and going and putting on performances and telling a few jokes and doing magic tricks that weren't actually magic tricks and then talking about the more sensitive side of 
the stigmas around males and um, being your best self, I suppose, to children um, because footballers that write children's book doesn't really come around too often. Um, and uh, I found that it was a really great gateway into meeting new people and opening doors again to the coaching and mentoring because adults who were listening as well as the children were getting a lot out of the message of resilience and hope. Um, at the time of writing the first book, I, it took me three or four publishers' um, rejections um, to get over. It's pretty standard, then, isn't it, uh, for people to publish books? That's it's a lot of yeah, rejections. And, it certainly is. Right. What was um, J.K. Rowling, like 32 times or something? Right. Or is that a bit of an over-exaggeration? I'm not sure. Um, it, but yeah, it's we a number a up there like that, isn't it? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I can't remember, but um, we had a couple of knockbacks and that was quite deflating. But again, it's sort of perseverance is something I've done all my life and and we finally got an offer and I said, oh, my wife is a, my wife's an architect, but she's a, a designer and an artist as well. She really wants to do the illustrations. Um, and they said, oh, look, we've already got five or six illustrators that complement your writing. Um, we sort of have that organised. And I had to turn that publisher down and say, look, we come as a, as a duo, so I'm going to have to walk away. And that was really hard for me. But I think in the long run it showcases the idea that family and the values we're trying to bestow in our um in our books came through in our real life um, journey into the the um, illustrator author combo world that we now live in. Um, so yes, here we are, three three books later, and, and we're going great, great guns. We're just having our second edition um, printed at the moment. Um, our publishers are um, sending that across because we've got orders coming in, and we've literally run out of books. So. Um, Congratulations! Yeah, really lucky. To, That's great. Yeah, doing some great things in the book world as well. The really positive messages going out there. Yeah, you know, it's not mm, just um, yeah, entertainment. Sure. There's there's real Yeah, I'll have, I'll have to get you a signed copy for your kids, Luke. That'd be great. Yeah. Mm, I'd give you two, Simon, but I reckon we gave uh, Isabella a signed copy for her birthday last year. There we go. <laughs> there we go. So that's great. So got in first, Luke. So, <laughs> and that's great. So, and obviously your conviction to keep to your values when to turn the publisher down is something that you know we all should probably pay attention to. You knew what your values were and you had that offer. After all the work, you had that offer there in your hand. There was, must have been mm. a bit of bittersweetness in it as well. You're like, oh, no, I have to say no. You know, did you have- No, it's a, it's a good lesson in life for all those listeners out there with a wife. You just never back down from the, um, from the wife because uh, she's the one actually doing all the work in the background. So if I was to turn around and say, sorry, Sorry to the wife, I'm going for this publishing deal. I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> I'd be able to call her wife anymore. Um, no, but all seriousness, yeah, it was a tough decision. It was uh, very tough indeed, but I think it all works out well. And you said before, Simon, around your wife and her philosophy that things do happen for a reason, and I feel that we're in a better place because of that and the partnership that Matt and I have. My wife is quite powerful in itself, and it gives us our little escape from family life. We talk about balance a lot on this podcast podcast and that's one way that we can escape the the rigors of each day that um confronts us that's so important and and this that's been another theme of the podcast episode so far has been um balancing life and your and all the effort and sacrifice that has to go into training for a big goal like a the big race mm-hmm. or the big event and um so that's really really good to hear it from you our final mm-hmm thought we want or final question topic we wanted to introduce to you was just this idea of the ultra mindset so ultra marathon is an event you train for it it's a lot of fun sometimes it's really painful everyone knows what it is and there's some obvious similarities or or parallels with what goes on in life and it can really build you personally and develop you as a as a person 
outside of the race and the training. And I think everyone listening to this would be familiar with, with that concept. But what, what about your lessons that you've taken from all events and all the stuff that you've done into, mm. into real life? How does, how does what you do in your ultra marathon world translate to your mental toughness and resilience outside? I think we've, we've sort of already touched on this. So I guess it's probably your chance to give yeah. us some final thoughts on this important topic. Yeah, for sure. It's a really great question and I'm really glad that you've asked it because it is a nice way to round out the conversation of all things life. Yeah. Um, running, running, there's a lot of science to it and it's the same with swimming and dancing and things. Humans need the rhythm, the rhythm. It keeps us in flow. So the heartbeat, we grew up um, being nurtured on the chest of our mother and whatnot. We know the science behind that with the heartbeat and the strokes of swimming or the running patterns of um, the pounding on the pavement. We need that just to keep in flow with life. Um, but it's such a it's a it's a really great one um, to finish on because it's important we understand that sometimes we have problems in life that can often overbear us. Um, and and running for me is a way that I can escape. It gives me time to reflect. It gives me time to balance me. Um, and often we do put ourselves last, um, which is seen from the outside as a great as a great attribute to have. Oh, he's always putting others first. But sometimes we just need to put number one first so that we can do the things for others that we, we wish to do properly. Um, I went into the huge run with Jack uh, last year with the idea that I was trying to save myself, that I had this idea that I'm just going to run for me. This is about me, my, my reckoning with life, and I'm just going to change the world. Um, but it, it soon pretty quickly turned around after a couple of days. This is nothing to do with me that there's some people out there that are really special in the world that need advocacy, that need people to communicate a message, that need inspiration, that need to um, reach for hope. Um, and I think, yeah, I went in there with this idea it was about me and I quickly turned that attitude around that the, the people around us are what make us special as individuals. And um, sometimes we think a problem is a people person, like, oh, that person can't run. You'll never be able to. You might be overweight, or you, you've always had injuries. It's a people person. It's a people person uh, problem, um, but it's actually a situational problem. And Simon and I talked about this, and I think Simon's making waves in his world with that same philosophy that um, sometimes our problems that we consider people problems, um, but it's a, a situational problem. And Simon's making waves because of one thing: lawyers. And, and Simon, you're a lawyer. Lawyers probably have a stereotype, much like footballers, that there's a stigma and then that you have to play up to that. And that sometimes is the greedy, pompous, pinstripe suit-wearing person, if you don't mind me saying. That's sort of the stigma that you sometimes get thrown around, characters in movies and whatnot. Um, but maybe it's not the person that's a problem. Maybe it's the idea that these suit-wearing people that need to live up to these high expectations are actually just normal human beings as well that are trying to inspire others and make the most out of each day because they have a life outside their job. So Simon, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying, he dresses in casual clothes that makes him feel comfortable. I think that's a fantastic message that sometimes people aren't the problem, it's a situation. So you just change the way you look by being you and dressing in a casual clothes. Um, it sends a really great message to the team around you and that's where real outcomes can happen. Um, so to round that off and make a point is that running for me is, isn't about becoming the best runner in the world. It's actually showcasing the world that I can and I will. That's so and important. Hopefully, that's inspiration for your listeners. Yeah, I can and I will. And you talked about having that rhythm, and that having that mm. grounding and that rhythm through your training and your running and everything, and making yourself into a better person. So then you can help others. Oh, I don't, I don't, mm. I don't hear, I don't feel anyone out there disagreeing with us on that one. I think that's just such a nice way to 
finish off the conversation. So can I round it off again? Simon, do you reckon we any, any final thoughts that you wanted to add? Or well, they were the final thoughts perhaps, Timmy? Uh, those were the final thoughts and they were, they were fantastic they final were. thoughts. Thank you for that, Timmy. Um, I should, I should point out, I, I can wear a suit if there's any employers out there when the time permits and uh, <laughs> just to note that one there, but thank you for those comments. That's, that's nice of you. In in the context, definitely there's there's been some advantages in being approachable and being you know and just being having people in your life. Not so much. Let's move on from from my career, but having people in your life um, understand that you're a human too. So that's what I took from that. And thank you for those comments, Jimmy. Luke, would you like to? The, the, the final thing to say would be that everyone, if you found that interesting, which you must have if you're still listening to this, you've got to get onto Timmy's website and have a look at some of his stuff. So it's Timothy Bristow. I'm going to put this in the show notes, timothybristow.com. And on his website, you can see Billy is featuring in the various kids' books. And there's a video there where you can actually hear um, – it's a bit of a backstory to that video that uh, perhaps we can talk about in the future. If you come on this one again, um, and and then the, you can also see some some other information about um, Tim and what he does. Uh, anywhere else, people mm. that can can find you, uh, find out more about you and your work, Timmy. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you jump onto the LinkedIn, I'm pretty sure it's just the same again, Timothy Bristow um, on LinkedIn. There's some good stuff in there, and um, I think just those books is our uh, book company, justlistbooks.com.au, if you want to jump on and have a look at what we're doing in the book world. Um, but, again, I just probably more so less about me. And if you want to learn more about me, I'd love to touch base with anyone and connect. It would be wonderful to hear from different people of all different walks of life and how uh, inspiration sort of, you know, propels you into your dreams um, as well. But I think it's really important to mention uh, the Duffy family, just like Jack Foundation is where we started. Um, watch this space. We're, we're doing a really big challenge this year and we're going to make it big time um, in terms of coverage media-wise and trying to raise some funds and awareness because what they do is actually uh, worthy of wearing a cape. They are superheroes and uh, I'm so glad to be part of it. So it would be lovely to give them a bit of a pump up as well to finish on because they do amazing things in the community. Absolutely. And we'll put a link to the Duffy Foundation and and everything else we've mentioned here in the show notes. So Go and look them up, not when you're running and not when you're driving, but perhaps when you stop. <laughs> Go and look at those show notes and click on those links and you can find out more. So, um, Timmy, really appreciate your time and love to do it again. I think we scratched the surface there. I think we've just sort of touched on a few things here. We've opened up a whole bunch of different topics. So be good to um, follow you and see what you do next. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a real privilege and I uh, can't wait to hear some more episodes along the journey. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Hey, who wants to do the outro, Simon? Do you want to have a go? Uh, over to you this time, Luke. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you on the trails, tracks, roads, rivers and oceans. And until next time, this is Luke and Simon Periton and Timmy Bristow enjoying everyday endurance. Bye.